We turn to our scripture lesson for this evening, which is in Acts chapter 2, or at least that will be our jumping off point. Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 39. As I promised last week, we're going to get a little more detail. I preached on this around the time that we baptized our little girls. I'm going to give you much the same message this evening. I was hoping there would be some others here who hadn't heard that before uh, tonight, but in God's providence, we've got a smaller congregation this evening. But nevertheless, this uh, fits in this series well, and so it'll be good to have it uh, in this series on on, uh, sermon audio. But here in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 14 through 39. And this is the word of God as given to Luke, and he recorded these things faithfully. And here as we pick up here with Peter's sermon, this is on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit has come upon the church and speaking in tongues, the people around them have accused the believers of being drunk. So this is where we pick up at verse 14. So this is God's word, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 39. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, and as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosened the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the way of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, 
he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Since the reading of God's holy word for us at this time, let's pray for his blessing. Lord, we do pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word, that it might redound to your glory, and that it might conform us more to the image of Christ. Let us not be hearers only, but let us be doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as well you know, it's not my intention this evening to exposit that whole passage. We just read from Acts 2, though we'll be dealing with Peter's quotation of Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, when we come to those very verses in our study of Joel, or really in the morning services. But rather, this evening I'm going to preach on the topic of baptism. Last week we dealt with baptism in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm going to use verse 39 as our jumping off point here. But specifically, I want to address the biblical practice, as the confession, as we read in the confession last week, that baptism belongs to believers and to their children. So we're going to deal with the practice that's often called infant baptism, though uh, that's, I have a little objection to that use of terminology. Many Christians today would find it odd that I would say this is a biblical practice. And so they would find what we do in Presbyterian churches and other Reformed churches to be strange and and unorthodox. However, in, in light of Scripture and church history, we find that this practice is completely biblical and orthodox. To be more accurate, the practice commonly called infant baptism really should be called the, the baptism of covenant children. We don't practice infant baptism in the sense that we would baptize babies indiscriminately. As I've said before, I don't just go to the hospital maternity ward and start baptizing babies at random. Uh, But we do practice the baptism of covenant children, of children of believers, because that practice is warranted by the principles that we find in Holy Scripture. Uh, Simply put, the children of believing parents are in the covenant, And they're considered to be part of the visible covenant people, uh, whether it's those children born to believing parents, or as in our case, those who were adopted by believing parents, or those whose parents become believers, whatever age they are, if they're children in their minority, they are themselves baptized. They may later themselves become communicant members of the church, but... uh, so let's say that you have brand new believers. Maybe they were never baptized. They, they might get baptized, and so will their children with them. 
So it's my purpose today to show that the Bible teaches that such children are members of the visible church. They're part of God's covenant people, and so they are entitled. They have a right to receive the sacrament of baptism. So in our reading from Acts 2, Christ had recently ascended to heaven, and about ten days later, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower the church and the apostles' ministry as he had promised them. Uh, This was at the time of the Feast of Weeks, also known by the Greek term Pentecost, which means the 50th. Just think about the, the math there. If you start on the first day of the week, uh, following the day following the Sabbath of Passover week, then you count seven weeks and you have a week of weeks, and hence it's called the Feast of Weeks. Or if you count from the Sabbath of the Passover week, then you count 50 days and it's the 50th day, so it's also called Pentecost. So when Jews from distant lands were gathered in Jerusalem, often what would happen. In Jesus' day, of course, in Old Testament times, the practice for those living in the land was that they were to be gathered, all of the adult males at least of Israel were supposed to gather at the central site of worship, which eventually was at Jerusalem, three times a year. At Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at, uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles. And... So here at the Feast of Weeks or at Pentecost, often what would happen in Jesus' day is that people would come from far and wide, and it might be that they could only afford to do that once in their life because the Jews were scattered so broadly throughout the ancient world. As we read in Acts chapter 2, they've come from places as far away as now what we would call Iran. They've come from North Africa. They've come from the Greek islands. They've come from what's now Turkey. They've come from Rome. And they've gathered there, and so usually they would come for Passover, and they would just stay the seven weeks, and then they would be there for the Feast of Weeks. And so you'll notice that, that according to Peter, these people here were, among them, were, were those who actually called for the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet the Lord was calling them to himself through the pe- preaching of Peter. The believers in Christ were gathered together when the Holy Spirit made His presence known by the sound of a rushing mighty wind and by tongues as of fire which rested upon each disciple of Jesus. And the sound of the wind drew this crowd, including many people who had uh, grown up in foreign lands, speaking languages that could not possibly be known by the people uh, of Galilee. And the disciples, most of whom were Galileans, who had never studied these foreign languages, were able to speak in the native languages of the visitors to the city, thus proving that God was at work. They proclaimed the mighty works of God in those tongues, and this miracle attested that the disciples were speaking a message that came directly from God. Some of the locals, however, who also did not know those foreign languages, accused them, accused the disciples of being drunk and just babbling. At that point, Peter addressed them first, saying they were not drunk. And you notice his presumption, it's it's, it's morning. (laughs) Who's going to be drunk right now? Uh, But rather, he says they were participating in the fulfillment of Joel 2, verses 28 through 32. 
and he quotes those verses. We'll get to study those more in detail, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. But he then proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They called Jesus God's Holy One, saying he was unjustly put to death as a sinner. And his resurrection confirmed the truth of who he was, that he was the Lord whom David saw being seated at the right hand of Yahweh. The one who is both truly God and truly human. The one who is both David's son and David's Lord. And upon hearing the gospel, Luke tells us the listeners were cut to the heart. Now that's another way of saying they were effectually called. They were cut to the heart. God pierced their hearts with the message of the gospel. The gospel had reached their hearts. And so they ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter answered in Acts 2, 38 and 39, repent. Here's what you shall do. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you, and this is the key for our study tonight, and to your children, and to all who are afar off, so that also means the promise belongs to Gentiles as well, as many as the Lord our God will call, Peter says. But notice for our purpose here this evening, as I said, the, P, the promise, Peter says, is to you and to your children. Well, we have to think, step back a minute, well, what promise? Well, from the historical context, especially ancient rabbinical sources, we see that in this period, in the period in which Peter is speaking here, if a Jew said the promise, didn't say a promise, or uh, didn't say the promise with a qualifier, like the promise to David, or the promise to Jeremiah. So the promise to Jeremiah is what? That the desolation of the temple would last for 70 years, things like that. The promise to David that a son would sit on his throne. Peter alludes to that here in this speech, but he says, the promise. Well, if a Jew in that period said the promise with no qualifiers on it, he meant the, God, the, excuse me, the promise that God made to Abraham. Well, so we need to Take another step back and say, well, what was that promise? Well, we find several details or aspects of it scattered throughout various statements of the Lord to Abraham in Genesis. Uh, probably the most significant element of that promise is found in Genesis twenty-two eighteen: In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians three sixteen tells us that seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ himself, who calls a people to himself out of every nation. But remember what we find in Genesis 17. The Lord gave his covenant promises, the promise, to Abraham, including that, that his descendants would occupy the land of Canaan and they would possess it, it would be given to them, and, and also including that promise that the seed of Abraham would come. But this covenant, these covenant promises were not in Genesis 17 simply given to Abraham himself, but they were given to Abraham and to his descendants. And then verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you 
in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now, Galatians 3.26 tells us that everyone who has faith in Christ, it's not necessarily someone who is merely a biological descendant of Abraham, but everyone with faith in Christ, whether you're descended from Abraham or not, belongs to Christ. They are children of God. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And then in Galatians 3.29, Paul says, this means that we who belong to Christ are Abraham's heirs. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to, what? The promise. You're the heirs promised to Abraham. And you receive that promise if you're in Christ. So that's the same promise Peter says belongs to the heirs of Abraham and to their children. Now, in Genesis 17, we see that the outward sign of receiving that covenant promise was circumcision. Now, let's consider Colossians 2.11. We read this last week. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So, believers in Jesus have received a circumcision, whether they're physically circumcised or not whether they're male or female. It's a circumcision that's, Paul says, made without hands. So it's not a physical circumcision, in other words, but a spiritual one. It's the inward state to which circumcision pointed. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, notice there's still a promise to the descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Think about that. That promise was also fulfilled, not only with every believer from Moses' time onward, but there in Acts chapter 2, they were what? Cut to the heart. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Deuteronomy 10.16, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. So there's something inward, something spiritual that's being talked about here. So in Romans 2, verse 29, Paul writes, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the Old Covenant period, the outward sign of that spiritual change of heart was physical circumcision. Circumcision of believers like Abraham and of all the male believers in their household, including children. But Paul tells us we now have a different outward sign that points to that very same thing, entrance into the covenant people. Colossians 2, 11 and 12, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Since Christ has come, baptism is the outward sign which points to the same inward renewal to which circumcision pointed in the Old Covenant. Christ came and established the New Covenant, and now this is the New Covenant sign. And again, notice that the outward sign belonged to Abraham's people and to their children. 
That was the case with circumcision, and Peter says here in chapter 2 of Acts, it belongs to your children as well. So baptism belongs to the people of Abraham, who by faith are heirs according to the promise, and to their children. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul is speaking about a marriage in which one spouse has become a believer, but the other one has not. In that context, he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And we don't have time to unpack all that, what sanctified means there. It doesn't mean that they're made holy themselves in terms of being saved. But for our purposes this evening, notice the apostle says the children of a believing parent are holy. Now that doesn't mean that every child of a believing parent becomes a believer. We know that from our own experience. (laughs) That doesn't happen, and the Bible attests to that. But think of ancient Israel. God called ancient Israel his holy people, his holy nation. But that didn't mean that every Israelite was faithful. We have entire generations that there are very few true believers among as we read the Old Testament historical books. But as with Israel, it does mean that children of believers are set apart from the world unto God as a peculiar people, part of a covenant people, part of a visible church. So just as all the males of Abraham's household were set apart and thus they received the sign of being set apart, of being God's holy people, the children of believers now in the new covenant are supposed to receive the same new covenant sign. In the New Testament, therefore, we see the same principle practiced in regard to baptism that was practiced in the Old Testament in regard to circumcision. In Genesis 17, when Abraham received at 99 years old the sign of the covenant, his household, every male eight days old and older, received the same covenant sign. And in Acts 16, then, we read of two households. Paul and his companions arrive in the city of Philippi in Macedonia. Luke tells us in verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now understanding how property rights usually worked back then, the fact that Lydia is running her own business, a seller of purple from Thyatira, she is, uh, that tells us she was probably a widow, most likely. If she had sons, they were not yet of age. They weren't old enough to run the business yet. So she's the head of the household. But in verse 15, we read immediately after Luke tells us she believed the gospel, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Her whole household is baptized. So when the head of the household became a believer, the whole household received the sign of being in the covenant. Later in the chapter, when the Philippian jailer is also converted, in verse 33, we're told, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. So he becomes a believer, 
And so his whole family receives the covenant sign. As John Calvin writes, Now, everyone may see that infant baptism was by no means fashioned by man, resting as it does on such firm approbation of Scripture, nor is their silly objection plausible that there is no evidence of a single infant's ever being baptized by the hands of the apostles, for even if this is not expressly related by the evangelists, still, because infants are not excluded when mention is made of a family's being baptized, who in his senses can reason from this that they were not baptized? If such arguments were valid, women should similarly be barred from the Lord's Supper, since we do not read that they were admitted to it in the apostolic age. But here we are content with the rule of faith. For when we weigh that what the institution of the supper implies, it is also easy to judge from this to whom the use of it is to be granted. We observe this also in baptism. Indeed, when we pay attention to the purpose for which it was instituted, we clearly see that it is just as appropriate to infants as to older persons. For this reason, infants cannot be deprived of it without open violation of the will of God, its author. The opponents of infant baptism spread among the simple folk the notion that many years passed after Christ's resurrection during which infant baptism was unknown. In this they are most shamefully untruthful. For indeed, there is no writer, however ancient, who does not regard its origin in the apostolic age as a certainty. Indeed, as Calvin says, that's a fact we find as we read the writings of the ancient church fathers. Before we get to the ancient church fathers, well, let's stick with the history that's written in the New Testament first. When early Jewish believers were told that circumcision was no longer the sign of entrance into the covenant, some of them, to use a technical term, threw an absolute fit. And we find this evidenced throughout Acts especially in the events that lead up to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. People were insisting you have to be circumcised to be saved. And we find Paul arguing against circumcision in his epistles as well as there in Acts, and, and he and Peter having to go to Jerusalem with elders from the church at Antioch, and, and then the Jerusalem Council meets the apostles and elders, and they determine, no, this is not required. Now, what would have happened if those same people who threw a fit when they were told circumcision is no longer valid, if they were also told, and your children are not considered in the covenant anymore? They would have thrown another fit. But there's no such fit to be found in Scripture or the testimony of the early church. All of the church fathers consider baptism of covenant children to have been the normal practice of the church from the time of the apostles. In the early centuries of Christianity, any time there was some new or aberrant practice arising, we would find clear objections from theologians, from pastors, asking, where did this come from? I don't see it in the Bible. What's going on? Uh, who invented this? Whether it was prayer to saints, veneration of Mary the rise of the papacy. The, this is a convenient one for us. There have been good research done on this. There was a book called Old Light on New Worship some years ago that shows it. The adding of musical instruments to public worship. We can trace that and we can see ancient church fathers saying, what's going on here? This is new. This is an innovation. I don't find it in Scripture. There were always church fathers who objected 
to anything, any innovation, any addition to Scripture as something unbiblical. There's no such objection to be found among the ancient church fathers to infant baptism. Indeed, as I was researching that matter, and I can't say that I read everything, is that the, there are volumes and volumes and volumes of the writings of ancient church fathers. But as I was researching this matter, the only controversy I could find is referred to in a letter of Cyprian of Carthage to a man named Phidus. Phidus was concerned that it was unbiblical to baptize a baby who was only a few days old. Why? Well, he thought that since baptism is circumcision, in terms of what it spiritually points to, shouldn't we wait until the child is eight days old? Because that's what you're supposed to do with circumcision. And basically, the answer that he received from a council of elders, and the answer is summarized by Cyprian in this letter, was that the timing of eight days was really an aspect of the Old Testament ceremonies to which the church is no longer bound. Uh, children of believers can be baptized as soon as convenient, is basically what, what they said. But we notice here that Phidus' concern actually proves to us that the early church, the early Christians, understood the connection of covenant theology here. That in covenant theology, there's a connection between what circumcision pointed to and what baptism points to. They're, they point to the same thing. And that children then of believers are entitled to that covenant sign. So what we see here is that the Bible clearly teaches that children of believers are in the covenant. The promise was to Abraham, his heirs, and to their children. The heirs of Abraham are those with faith in Christ, as we find in Galatians. Therefore, the promise belongs to those who have faith in Christ and to their children. And so the sign of that covenant promise belongs to believers and to their children. Let's just think about what God thinks of us if we neglect that. In Exodus chapter 4, the Lord has sent Moses to Egypt. And we read this starting at verse 24. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. There's a lot of debate about what that means. We don't have time to go into it. But, but, uh, but apparently the, the Lord struck Moses. He was quite ill, it appears. Then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So she wasn't too fond of the notion of circumcision, apparently. So he, God, that is, let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. So that's a difficult passage to understand. The Hebrew is a little bit difficult there, but, but it appears that... The Lord was threatening Moses' life, so to speak. Why? Because he hadn't circumcised his son yet. That's how seriously God takes the covenant sign. And of course, as we're told in Genesis 17, any, anyone who's not circumcised was to be cut off from his people. We have no reason to believe that God takes baptism any less seriously. 
God exhorts his people. He exhorts you, do not neglect the great privilege and responsibility of baptism. For the promise is to you and to your children. Let's pray. Lord, let us not neglect this great privilege for which we are thankful, but let us duly and rightly apply the covenant sign, not just to those who profess faith, but to all to whom it belongs, to believers and to their children. Grant that we might recognize how seriously you take this covenant sign and be faithful to encourage it, to make use of it, to remember our own baptism, as it were, that we might see the way in which you have applied the cleansing of conscience, the cleansing of Christ to us, the new birth in him. Circumcise our hearts, O God, and show that forth in baptism, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.